Life Happens with Pimelo Mutine on SAFM, leading the conversation. Six minutes after two o'clock at this time every week we have a discussion on a woman that's really had a massive impact on our history a woman that has really done her bit to to add value to our democracy Dulce september is one such woman you may not have heard of her especially if you're somebody who who was born in the latter years of our democracy maybe even in the 90s and so on you may not have heard of her and i think we should take collective responsibility why you don't hear much about Dulce september so i've invited two guests, Kelly Eve Kopman, who is a writer and multidisciplinary creative in South Africa, and then Rasmus Bits, journalist and head producer in South Africa. Thank you very much both for joining me and for making the time to talk about this this woman that we hardly hear much, you know, very little about. Hi, hi everybody. Hi. Hello. So let, let me just start with you, Kelly. Uh, your interest in Dulcie September, where did that come from? Kelly, Kelly Eve. Oh, sorry. Hello. <laughs> I, my question sorry. to you was: you. Where, where, <laughs> what sparked your interest in Dulcie September? Well, um, I kind of came on board at South Africa while they were um, in mid-production with the series, and I'd heard of Dulcie before, mm. but um, very kind of vaguely, yeah. um, as I think many people had had not heard of her as well or had heard of her quite vaguely. And as soon as um, they, you know, Rasmus told me about the project. I just, I was actually, I was legitimately blown away as to, you know, what an immense impact she had had, what an incredible life she had lived, and of course the, you know, the the, the very layered circumstances around her death, and the fact that like I'd known so little of of this narrative, if anything at all. Rasmus, I, I mean, really know about Dulcie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rasmus, I mean, it's it's often the case that um, you know somebody impacts your life in such a big way, and then you you just can't help it but do something about it. What was it about Dulcie that really touched you in that way? And to to me, yes, to you, Rasmus. Sorry, yeah. Mm. The, no, the sound was well. So basically, my interest came when I read the book uh, "Apartheid, Guns, and Money: A Tale of Profits," mm. which is really about like sanctions busting and economic crime during apartheid. And in that book, there's like a few pages about Dulce September. And when I read that, I saw sort of the contours of an amazing story of an amazing person that I felt that myself, as well as a lot of people that I know in South Africa and the world actually knew way too little about this extraordinary person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of where, where, where my interest in her and her story began. I mean, I'm, I was taken by how early on she was, she, you know, she started getting prosecuted. So not only at the very latter years of her life when she was in exile and so on, but very, very early on in the Cape Flats where, where she started really feeling the wrath of discrimination. Yeah, it was it was incredible to see like very early in life how she actually ended up along with a few other um activists to to not just sense and feel what was wrong in society but to go up and actually take the consequence of that put herself on the line to the extreme extent that uh, as you know she ended up spending uh, years in jail. Was it 6 um, years they, or something like that? I mean, do we know? 
Yeah, yes, I believe it was it was six years, and after that, a banning order, and then after that, exile. Mm-hmm. And I mean, most of us, when we are at that age, like early in our careers, um, we you know we party, we try to maybe get a family, etc. We're not really ready to draw that extreme consequence of of what we believe in as as her and her comrades were at the time. So any any one of you can answer the question, what was the actual charge when she was arrested? Uh, the charge was um con- conspiracy let me just see what the actual wording was but yeah. it was conspiracy to commit acts of sabotage mm-hmm. and incite acts of politically motivated violence that was uh, the words that they used at the time. But what they had done was actually to form a group called the National Liberation Front, mm-hmm. which essentially wanted to overthrow the apartheid government. And, and this was in the early 1960s. So it's interesting because we don't get to hear that uh, a lot about that, the, the, the National mm-hmm. Liberation Front, which obviously comes from uh, the Cape Flats and so on. You know, Kelly, Eve, are you, can you give us a sense of what that movement was about? Oh, I wouldn't feel comfortable to try and give you any <laughs> Rasmus, would you give it a shot? A <laughs> would you give it a shot, Rasmus? Yeah, well, I also can't say that I'm a total expert on the many Mm. different kinds of groups that that were there at the time. But what I can say is that, you know, um, it came out of this uh, group uh, called the Yu Chi Chen Club, which was inspired by Mao Zedong and some of his writings from, from China at the time. And um, there was kind of a study group amongst uh, uh, young, politically active, most of them were teachers at the Cape Flats at the, or in Cape Town at the time. And they decided that a study group at the time wasn't really enough. Um, so they disbanded that group in 1962 and then formed the National Liberation Front in 1963. But what's interesting about that, I find one of the most interesting things is that when we look back at the sort of the history of the anti-apartheid movements and different groups that have been around, a lot of people were actually very active and we don't know mm-hmm. much about them. It's sort of, uh, you know, the past sort of tends to get more simple than it really was, right? I mean, um, the, the year 1963 when she was arrested for me is, is an interesting one because we've got to put it in context, Kelly Eve. I mean, what else was happening at that time? It's, it's, it's quite an interesting time in our history. I think we're going to really battle with this line. Are you, are you with me, Erasmus? Are you able to hear me? Uh, I can hear you, yes. I, I was just saying uh, the importance of 1963. Are you able to give it uh, some context in the, the year when she was arrested? In, in, South, South, in Africa. South Africa. I mean, it, yeah. uh, it, it was, of course, the, the year of the Rivonia trials, yes, for that, example, right? Yep, yep. So, so I guess we can, we can say that it was um, a, a time where, I mean, I can't say that I'm an expert on, on the history of that. Um, but, uh, sorry, are you there? I am still here. Yes, Erasmus. Okay, I'm just hearing. I have my phone line is also also a bit weird, but but it was the year of the Rivonia trial. Obviously, it was a time where the apartheid state uh, was really seeing uh, 
opposition rise amongst the youth and amongst the uh, society in South Africa. Um, so, so I guess we can say that it was a it was a time of high militancy, high like um, resistance to the apartheid that only sort of got stronger and stronger at the time. She obviously, you know, um, was released from prison, and then three years later, she decided to leave the country. Do we know who recruited her in London to be one of the ANC members? Um, look, I don't know who specifically recruited her, but she didn't uh, become a member of the, the ANC immediately yes. when she uh, when she came to uh, to England. She uh, started as uh, also uh, as, uh, to sort of go to school and and become a teacher when when she uh, came there, and then she joined the anti-apartheid movement. Uh, and and later on, she was a member of what was called the the International Defense and Aid Fund, which was a group that was sort of aiding political prisoners in South Africa at the time. But it wasn't until 1976 that she joined the uh, ANC. Uh, so she did spend a few years sort of finding her feet uh, before she eventually went to the ANC. And what we do know is that she was part of the, that sort of exiled South African community in England that would meet in pubs and discuss politics and maybe they were a bit homesick. And after a while, she felt, I guess, that the ANC would be the right place for her to uh, to take her, her struggle further. I mean, she she didn't just um, become part of the ANC, but she agitated. She agitated um, and governments were a bit annoyed by her, not just the South African government. I think the, the French government was also annoyed by her. What, what was she ag- agitating for that got that diplomacy a bit shaken there? Yeah, she was highly uh, irritating for for the for the people that were supporting apartheid. You could say um, by the time that she came to uh, France, and that was only in the in the eighties, she became the ANC chief representative in France, with uh, Switzerland and Luxembourg, and her job was essentially to uh, rally up support for the ANC and against apartheid. And but part of that for Dorsey was also to point out the double standards of the French uh, authorities when they would sort of on the one hand accommodate the ANC and her and speak out against apartheid, but on the other hand trade and actively break the arms embargo that was against South Africa at the time. Dorsey was somebody that was not afraid to speak up um, against both, you know, the the countries she was in, of course, the apartheid government in South Africa, but even also when she would see inconsistencies or problems within her own movement, everybody that uh, we've spoken to to make the podcast about <clears throat> Dorsey have pointed out how fearless she was mm-hmm. and how uncompromising she was when she saw something that she thought was not right. Um, initially, she was uh, doing a lot uh, to raise awareness about the plight of particularly women and children in South Africa. That was sort of uh, one of the things she did in the ANC. And then later on, she started honing in on, for example, the uh, uh, arms trading and the breaking of the arms embargo against uh, the apartheid government. Hmm. Kelly, what stood out Hi. for you when uh, you welcome back? What stood out for <laughs> you when when you were involved in this project about her? I mean, uh, many people talk about how fierce she was, you know, how relentless she was. What stood out for you? 
I think that what stood out to me was, Brad just kind of mentioned it now, but also the complexities around her narrative. And I think the process of the narratives that we construct around the past and even the ways, you know, we tend to iconize certain stories and not, well, icon, or, or place certain stories in particular narrative parameters has meant that a lot of what Dulcie did what she was investigating, what she stood for, um, was kind of largely relegated. So yes, she was an activist, and yes, in many ways, I mean, I, I would construe her as a feminist in terms of uh, she, she spoke up against injustice in kind of all its forms, you know, within the movement um, and abroad. And so for me, it was just her story was a portal into a uh, a set of, of of stories around South African struggle and resistance history that even as someone with a deep interest in that, I, I knew so little about. Mm. Um, so as much as falling in love with her, I, I was also so enlightened by the, the myriad kind of facets of her story and her activist trajectory. I mean, the elephant in the room is that her murder was never solved. You know, we, 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 yeah. we, we don't know who killed her. We know that there were shots to her head. But how much do we know of the actual day and incident how much of the pieces have we been able to pull together? Do you want to take that one? Yeah, sure, sure. So, so look, that's the thing. Like, there is a black box around that. We know that on that morning, uh, on the 29th of March, 1988, she went into her office in the center of Paris as she usually did. She collected a mail. She took the lift up to the uh, floor where the ANC office was. And I was actually at that building. I was in that lift, which is this tiny enclosure. Uh, So I was sort of, when I was there, imagining what it must have been like for her to to travel that journey. And then she stepped out where she then was was shot. Uh, But there were no witnesses, nobody that, you know, know what happened. Everybody that know exactly what happened are either uh, dead or, uh, you know, or the ones that shot. Um, and we don't, of course, know whether they are still alive either. Um, you know, in the podcast, we have certain, we, we lay out like what we do know, but the truth of the matter is that we cannot say uh, who pulled the trigger. Mm. Um, but we also don't really think that that's necessarily the most important question to answer in the story of her. It is obviously important for justice, but what we found out that was really extraordinary was uh, the interests that really benefited from uh, silencing Dulcie. And that was a lot of those. That was, for example, of course, the apartheid government, Mm -hmm. uh, but also certain interests in France, arms dealers Mm -hmm. that were working out Mm -hmm. of the French embassy, Mm -hmm. bankers in Europe that Mm -hmm. was helping, um, you know, the apartheid state by weapons, uh, some elements probably within French intelligence and, of course, South African intelligence. So we could sort of see like vast networks of people that really benefited from silencing her. Um, And that, I think, goes to show how uh, brave she actually was, but also um, how big power she fought. And those powers, very almost none of them have really ever been brought to justice. It would be so interesting, Rasmus, as you say it. It would be so interesting because when you look at the arms deals history, 
it will be interesting to see where in that puzzle she fits because it does date back to those days when the French were really starting to get involved and were given space in South Africa after the Dutch kind of gave them themselves room to allow others to come and become economies here. Um, to see, as you said, just how much she agitated um, for for and, and and disrupted that that cozy relationship between the French and the South African regime when they were starting to negotiate trading with regards to to arms and so on. It'll be interesting whether anywhere in the documentation that we now have accumulated on the arms deal, if her name comes up. Yeah, so so that's really interesting because she sort of played two parts, you could say. On the one level, she was agitating. She was arranging these protests and demonstrations outside the South African embassy in Paris to raise awareness. But on the inside, she was also investigating this stuff. And there are documents in her handwriting on the letterhead of, of the ANC office in Paris where we can see she was sort of um, looking into, for example, ships that were transporting weapons from France to South Africa. And the thing is, when she died, we lost the opportunity to accurately uh, establish how much she actually knew. But what we have found out is that she was probably one of the people that knew most about what was going on in secret there, more than more than definitely was publicly known and probably more than most other people at the time. Okay, let's take a quick break and then I will also take your calls on 0891-104-207. Her story today is on Dulcie September. Let's have the conversation at SAFM Radio on Twitter. Her story this afternoon is on Dalsit September and I've got two guests who are helping me unpack uh, this phenomenal woman, really a formidable force who we know very little about. Kelly Eve Kopman is a writer and multidisciplinary creative and Rasmus Bits is a journalist and head producer and uh, they did a whole podcast and series on Dalsit September and found many, many interesting things on, as I said, this formidable force. One of the things I want to ask you is, you know, we are scratching at the surface here and guessing just how much she may have been an irritation to arms dealers for instance across the seas in France, uh, arms dealers who are in negotiation with South Africa, you said bankers and so on so as you said, you know there may have been an entire force that didn't want us to know who killed her Yeah, yeah and and that's that's very uh, clear that um you know so many people were in, were interested in like not only that we wouldn't find out who killed her but it also seems that there's been a big interest in sort of erasing the memory of her because mm-hmm. the thing is Dulcy September mm-hmm. when she was killed she was not uh, a nobody she was the highest ranking ANC official ever to be assassinated outside of southern africa and uh, when she died like just one example was that jean michel Shah, who was um, at the time one of the most uh, popular artists in europe if not the world he made like a whole a song about her and you know it was a big deal and then over the years, it appears like her memory almost sort of faded a bit. And um, and she's not really that household name in, in South Africa, as, as at least we think that she deserves 
to be. Um, and it and it seems like the thing was does a September for the people who were sort of on the side of injustice in in life. She was really a pain to them, you know. She was never one to be mm-hmm. silenced, and she didn't want to toe the line. And I think even after her death, you know, starting to really find out who killed her and why she was killed would bring up these uncomfortable truths that a lot of people in power, both um, before and, and after uh, the end of apartheid, would would it would be more convenient convenient to sort of forget these things, right? And at least we theorize in the podcast that that's one of the reasons that she's not more known today than 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 she is. Than she should be. I think that and gender erasure. I think we could say the same for a lot of women. Um, Dorothy and a lot of women tend not to, you know, be given the credit that they deserve. And, tend and not to have become household names. And I mean, Kelly, for me, that what struck me, and I, I mean, of course, we've known of how brutal. Um, some of these murders were and how brutal the the state was on people like her. But I just, when you hear of the number of bullets that went straight to her head at close range, one can't, I mean, I, 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 I couldn't help but just imagine, I mean, couldn't, did it have to be that brutal, Kelly? I mean, what was your take on that? I mean, I, that's a very triggering and difficult question. I mean, it's clear that she had to be taken out. And, you know, it felt, yeah, it, it, she was obviously a threat. Um, she had obviously, as Rasmus mentioned, pissed off a lot of people. And yes, her murder was incredibly brutal. And the treatment that she received before and after and the treatment of her memory has also been um, incredibly violent. So just the, the, the structural and physical violent circumstances around her life and death, especially this Women's Month, of course, very triggering and very tragic and leave us with a lot of questions. As usual. Thanks very much for that, Kelly. Uh, Rasmus, I mean, you've done your bit and, and try and retrace her steps and so on and, and did a podcast. How would you feel as a country we would honor her? What What do you think needs to happen to honor her better? Uh, that I mean, I couldn't really answer that because uh, a lot of re- like one of the main reasons is that I am not a South African. I live here. I've lived here for for six years but um and i and i i wouldn't decide like I try, you know try which and monuments and, <laughs> and and that kind of yeah. thing um i i just think that if you compare her to people that are heroes legitimately and national symbols um people who have sacrificed uh, are rightly in in you know honored in 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 many different ways and and she although it feels like there is a resurgent interest in her uh, these days like others that have been sort of forgotten for a while um yeah i don't know i i honestly couldn't, couldn't say <laughs> fair enough kelly kelly if you wanted to give it a shot yeah i feel like i mean when you listen to the podcast it becomes clear that dulcie wasn't one who want, really wanted to be constantly celebrated and iconized and she kind of she was very much about the movement you know and it seems like a cheesy answer but it's the truth that to honor people like her is to envision and work towards the the vision for justice and equity and you know the rights of all people that she had i don't think she would have wanted a monument or um you know she was committed to her vision and i think her legacy asks us to do the same
Exactly, Eve Cookman, a writer and multidisciplinary creative, Rasma Spitz, a journalist and uh, somebody who uh, just put the pieces together and gave us a magnificent podcast. We'll share that podcast with you on the life of Dalsi September. We've just gone uh, past 2.30. Let's get the very latest in headlines with Utsi Lesaku.